Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm McKenna Mezzastrano, and today I will be interviewing Davy Mays about her new book, Forging Ties, Forging Passports, Migration, and the Modern Sephardi Diaspora, which was published in 2020 by Stanford University Press, and which also won the 2020 National Jewish Book Award in the category of Sephardic Culture. Davy is an assistant professor of Judaic studies and history at the University of Michigan. She earned her PhD in history and Jewish studies at Indiana University Bloomington, and she was a postdoctoral fellow at the Jewish Theological Seminary in New York. Her work focuses on transnational Jewish networks in the Mediterranean and global contexts with a focus on Sephardic Jews. Davy, it is so great to have you here today. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, McKenna. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. So to start off, I wanted to know if you could just tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you came to research Sephardic migrants to Mexico. All right, great uh, great question. Um, and I think in some ways, our stories of how we come to research projects are also really stories of, of self-discovery and, and a lot about, um, I guess, a lot about my research uh, ties into sort of who I am as a person. Um, I'm not Sephardi by background, but when I was a teenager, I first traveled to Istanbul uh, with my mother, and we were walking down Istiklal Jadesi, which is a main uh, pedestrian thoroughfare in uh, Beolu, or historically known as the Para district of Istanbul. And we went into a silk store, and one of the owners there looked at me and my mother, and he asked my mother, are you Jewish? And my mother kind of hesitated and then said yes. And he said, well, we're Jewish also, you know, we're Sephardic, but we're all part of the same family. Um, and then several years later, when I was in college, I went back to Istanbul to do a summer language program there at Boaziji uh, University. And I went back to that silk store and the man there, his name was Isaac Calvo. Um, he remembered me from years earlier and we became very good friends. Um, and so, after I graduated from undergraduate, I went back to Turkey and I lived there in Istanbul for a year and would go into Isaac's shop every Saturday and spend time talking with him and with the other people in the store um, who were all, all Turkish Jews, all Sephardi. And in having conversations with, with them, it made me really interested in learning more about the history of Sephardi Jews and about Turkish Jews in particular. Um, and so when I started graduate school, I came from this uh, language background of Turkish um, and I'd studied Hebrew and Arabic when I was an undergrad, uh, but I didn't know Ladino. And so it was really key for me to learn Ladino or Judeo-Spanish to be able to do the projects that I wanted to do about um, sort of Sephardi history and the transition from the Ottoman Empire into the Turkish nation state. Um, and so after my first semester of or after my first year of graduate school, my advisor suggested that I go to um, 
to study Spanish intensively for the summer, and then we would come back and do a Ladino readings course together. Um, and he suggested that I go to Spain, but I couldn't afford that um, on a graduate student stipend, uh, but I could afford to go to Mexico. And so I went to Mexico to spend the summer there studying Spanish. Um, and while I was there, one of my good friends from undergraduate, uh, from my undergraduate degree um, is, is a Mexican Jew and his family comes from uh, Aleppo. So they're part of the Halabi community of Mexico City. Uh, but his girlfriend at the time, now his wife, her grandmother was from Turkey. And so when I was there and in speaking to her and talking about her grandmother and meeting her family, I became really interested in how Turkish Jews came to Mexico. Um, and so when I got back to the United States, I started looking for any resources I could find about this and I couldn't find anything. And so I thought, oh, well, this could be a really interesting dissertation topic uh, because it covers the time period that I'm interested in and engages in these questions of you know, what did uh, Sephardi Jews do? How did they um, adapt to the collapse of the Ottoman Empire and what came afterward? Um, and how is this community in Mexico, where did it come from and how was it linked to um, the, the Sephardi Jews who remained in what became Turkey or Greece or those who went elsewhere? And so the dissertation project really came out of these um, Sort of my being in different places and encountering and uh, conversing with people who came from um, these these backgrounds that were different to my own, uh, to my own, uh, but really um, that sort of personal connection and wanting to know more about their stories and how the like the stories of individuals fit within this larger political and social and cultural um, time period and processes of change was really what brought me to this this topic to begin with. Yeah. And I think I love what you said at the beginning about how like how we come to research is really about, you know, ourselves and how we understand ourselves. I totally relate to that. And I also just think, I don't know, it's so meaningful to hear people's personal connection to the research because I don't think you can get away from that. I think everyone has, you know, a very deeply personal connection to what they want to learn about. And it does help us learn about ourselves too. Um, so on something that you said, something that just I mean, baffled me about this book is that it sounded like you were almost like chasing some of these stories around the world. I think you wrote that you went to like over a dozen archives or something like that. So wanted to know if you could talk a little bit more just about the process of researching this book and all the places that you went and maybe even some challenges in tracking down some of these stories. Yeah. So, you know, when I said that in some ways, like this, this book was like mirrored these intensely personal things that I I experienced while researching it. You know, one of the things in researching this book is that I, I was researching people who were incredibly mobile and moved all over the place and went to different countries, you know, might live there for, you know, six months or, you know, sometimes decades and then move somewhere else or be traveling between these different places. And so to do this research, I had to also travel to all of these different places. And I think in some ways, like researching this, these, the, the people who I researched in this book made me more like them. And the challenges that I encountered in traveling, I think made it more, made some of their experiences seem more immediate to me. Um, so with, with my book, um, part of how it turned out the way that it did, um, and I'm, I, in this book, I try to tell 
the stories of migration um, in the context of what's happening on a larger global or national sphere, but really from the perspective of individuals as they were navigating these changes and moving through different places and the networks that they formed with each other. Um, and so this, as you said, required, you know, tracking down who these people were and where they were, where they were passing through and, you know, the different archival traces that I could find of them. Um, and, you know, as you said, it, in some ways, it felt like this process of chasing these people down um, and sort of scouring for any, any hints of them that I could find in, in uh, different archival records. Um, you know, and so this took me, as you said, I, I think I went to, I mean, I went to over a dozen archives. I spent, you know, quite a long time um, in Mexico in doing research in various archives there. Um, also in, in Istanbul, uh, in the Ottoman archives and in Ankara, in the Turkish Republican archives, uh, in the archives of the Alliance Israelite Universelle in France, the National Archives in DC, uh, the Habsburg or the Austrian uh, foreign archives in Vienna, um, and I'm oh, in the Central Archives for the History of the Jewish People in Israel. So there were all of these different um, archives that I had to work with, um, and you know there are a lot of challenges that that came with that. Um, you know, like among them, for example, in in Mexico, the Mexican archives do not classify people by religion, and so trying to search down who was Jewish or who was Sephardi in Mexican records, it's not something that is sort of intuitive to how the archives were structured there. Um, and so instead of, you know, looking for uh, Jews, there people are classified according to what country they came from. And so to identify who was Jewish or who was Sephardi, I actually came up with like this database of 2000 people and their last names and then tried to trace these people, uh, these individuals um, through different archival records, including court cases and immigration records and that sort of thing. Um, and then if you're looking at, say, Ottoman records, um, you know, oftentimes the last names of people were not given. And so you would have the first name, son of so-and-so or daughter of so-and-so, which made it very difficult to try to connect, you know, the strands that I might have in Mexico and the United States and France with what I had in, in the Ottoman and, and Turkish archives. Um, and so trying to put a coherent, trying to write a coherent narrative um, for this book, uh, and I don't know that I always succeeded, but I certainly tried, but trying to write a coherent narrative with, you know, the um, sort of the gaps in different archival structures and the types of stories that I could weave together uh, was another challenge that came out of a project that, you know, required working in so many different places. Yeah, well, I'm really, I mean, I just think it's great for people to kind of hear about that process because, I mean, I think the book reads very elegantly and smoothly and you read these like, you know, composite stories of people where you illustrate how they were portrayed or how they self-identified in this documentation that really, you know, transcended a lot of borders and was kind of put together throughout different times and places. And I mean, it because I'm, you know, I do a little research of my own. I'm just kind of baffled at like, how did this come together? So that's why I wanted to ask. Um, so before we get too much further, actually, I 
you know, we've been using this term and I want to make sure that people understand why. And it's also part of the title of your book. You, um, you're, you introduce the term migrant uh, very intentionally in this book. Um, I wanted to know if you could talk a little bit about the significance of that term for this particular project. Right. So, yeah, in the title of my book, it talks about migration and the modern Sephardi diaspora. And I'm very strategically using or deliberately rather using the term migration as opposed to immigration or emigration. Uh, and there are a few reasons about or for that. Um, one is that if you use the like in using the terminology immigration, um, there's a directionality to it. And that's a per, like it's also coming from the perspective of, you know, a particular country that people are coming into. And likewise, with the term emigration, it's also a sort of state-centered perspective of, you know, the country that people are leaving. And this can, you know, together these terms immigration and emigration both center the perspective of the state for people who are moving around, um, but they also sort of suggest that migration is unilinear, like unilinear, or rather it's moving in, uh, unidirectional, sorry, uh, moving in one direction and sort of point A to point B. Um, and as I was researching this book and writing this book, what I saw was that the people who I was looking at were not going from one place to another, but rather they were going from one place, you know, through many different locations, um, oftentimes you know, moving back and forth between different countries in sort of more of a cyclical way. Um, so, for example, somebody, uh, you know, might be living, say, you know, have come from Izmir in the Ottoman Empire and be living in um, Mexico City, uh, but may have another sibling who's living in New York and another sibling at this time who's living in Paris and you know, travel for three to six months of the year to New York and to France before going back to Mexico City um, for business, but also for personal uh, you know, relationships. And so what I saw was this movement that was not linear. Um, and so I, I thought you know, the term migration captures that, that sort of continual movement of people. Um, which is borne out in the stories that I'm telling and isn't necessarily from the perspective of the state. So these were people who were moving around and had to be very familiar with how different countries understood them or how different countries classified them. Uh, but, you know, at the center of their experience wasn't necessarily that. It was about the process of being mobile and the process of connecting to you know, family members or friends or, you know, within patronage networks or commercial networks with other Sephardi Jews who were located elsewhere in the world. And so it was much more, um, you know, the, the, the movements were much, uh, were not linear and were much more sort of cyclical or, you know, constantly developing than a term like immigration or immigration gives a sense of. Yeah, definitely. And something else that you said that I mean, kind of another term that appears over and over is this notion of hypermobility. Um, and so I actually was curious as I was reading, like, I guess uh, these Sepharadim were considered hypermobile, but is that like relative to what, I guess, or relative to who else? I Like, was there kind of a comparison that you had in mind there? 
Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that like a number of people have asked me about this term that I sort of want to put out as a caveat is I don't necessarily think that this idea of hypermobility, for example, is unique to the 20th century for Sephardi Jews. So I think you can see this and the way that I define hypermobility or the way that I understand this term in my book is that it's, you know, more of a sustained long term uh, experience of mobility that's moving between multiple different nodes um, for a, a prolonged period of time, sometimes over the course of an entire life or multiple generations. Um, and in this hypermobility, there are, you know, parts of it are also through the movements of people. There are also the movements of goods, the movements and exchange of knowledge, um, you know, of, of family, of patronage networks and all of this sort of thing where there's not a clear end point where people are migrating. Um, and so I think you can in some ways see this in say the early modern Sephardi world in the Mediterranean, that this is not something that, as I said, is unique to Sephardim in the 20th century uh, but that we can see far earlier. Although, you know, there are certain key differences like, you know, there was not the sort of regulation of passports and such and visas in, in the early modern period. Um, and I do think that we can see similarities between what Sephardim are doing here in the in my book and like, say, Syrio-Lebanese uh, migrants during the same period. So it's not an exclusively Jewish phenomenon. I don't think it's an exclusively Sephardi phenomenon, but there are certain things that Sephardim have unique access to, certain tools um, that I look at that are uniquely Sephardi. Uh, but when I say that, like, this hypermobility exists, you know, what does it exist in, like, you ask, what does it exist in sort of contrast to? And I think, you know, what it exists in contrast to is this much more traditional idea of what immigration looks like, which is that it's, you know, point A to point B, and then sometimes, um, you know, focus particularly if we look at immigration to the United States or Israel, where immigration, Jewish immigration to Israel is very often just seen as point A to point B, and then it stops, you know, in Jewish, there is no such, I mean, there is such thing, but like immigration, Jewish immigration to Israel, you know, further movement beyond that is not really examined, um, or in the United States, uh, with immigration to the United States, people talk a lot about, say, return migration of Italian immigrants, for example. But return implies that they're going back to where they came from, as opposed to going somewhere else. Um, and also within that, that sort of paradigm of return migration, Jews coming to the United States are often seen as an exception to that. So a lot of people who study Jewish immigration to the U.S., for example, highlight how there really was no such thing as return migration for Jews or that it happened, you know, at a, a rate that was profoundly lower than you would see with other immigrant groups. And that just simply was not the case with what I found here. Um, and so, you know, that that those sort of paradigms, both within uh, say Jewish migration studies, but then also within American immigration studies more broadly are sort of what I was in conversation with here and suggesting that there might be other ways of looking at people on the move or migration. I think your point about immigration to Israel is so, is such a great point because I've never even really thought about it. Like immigration to Israel is called Aliyah, right? Which literally means to go up 
implying that you're not going to go down. <laughs> you're not going to come back down, right? Like, And like you said, that's very unidirectional, but it's not necessarily the reality always. And so I think it's definitely good to kind of pick that apart or interrogate that a little bit more. So yeah, that's super interesting. Um, on this note of kind of I know, you know, we just said not to use this word exactly, but kind of the right return migration of some of these Sephardim to Mexico and then back um, to the to the Ottoman Empire. Uh, one of the sources that I thought was really interesting that you used was um, a Ladino novel, actually, that there was like a trope of this sort of uh, cyclical migration in the Ladino novel. So I just I don't know if a lot of people know about the Ladino novel. So I wanted to see if you could tell us a little bit about that and kind of how this story was borne out in um yeah, in that in these books. Yeah, so th this is a great question. Um, as McKenna knows, uh, one of my sort of side projects and one of my passions is um, early 20th century Ladino literature and reading and translating Ladino novels. And, you know, just to make a, a plug for a project that McKenna and I are hoping to work on in the future is the translation and publication through the uh, University of Washington of at least one of these, these novels. Um, and so, uh, Ladino literature, um, or, or there are specific, uh, say, Ladino novels and novellas from the early 20th century. So from, I'd say, like, uh, the ones that McKenna is talking about from 1910 uh, to, I think, the latest one that I've read so far is, like, 1923, um, that where Jewish migration or the migration of Jews from uh, the Ottoman Empire uh, various pl places within the Ottoman Empire, where that is the central theme uh, of these novels. And so several of these that I've, I've come across um, and that I cite in various places in the book were written by um, uh, a man named Elia Carmona, who was a Ladino um, author and uh, journalist from Istanbul, from Constantinople, and probably, or not probably, but uh, the Ladino writer who authored the most Ladino novels and novellas of, of any other author. Um, and he wrote several books uh, that were specifically focused on these questions of migration. Um, uh, one of them on migration to France and, you know, because of a shipwreck, stuck, somebody stuck in Corsica, who eventually returns to his um, fiance in Istanbul, who he had left 10 years earlier and sort of very dramatically shows up to, um, to, to marry her at the, the last second. Uh, but you know, that there's this trope uh, within that of a man coming back from having made his fortune abroad. Carmona says repeatedly that, you know, all Oriental men are all men from the, the Orient, which is for him the Ottoman Empire. He says whether they're Armenian or Greek Orthodox or Jewish, they never want to marry a woman from the place that they move to. They always want to marry a woman from their place of origin. So when they get enough money, they return to, you know, Constantinople or wherever to find a wife. Uh, but there's this trope then of these men making in the in multi, like this novel, but also in others that he wrote of men making their money abroad, you know, whether in the United States or in France uh, or Italy, uh, and then returning to the Ottoman Empire dressed entirely differently. So they change out their clothes. They come back wearing you know a Western style suit. Uh, they 
there's often <laughs> this trope of you know they they change their their fez for a uh, chapeau for uh you know french like they use the term chapeau from french in ladino so a european style hat uh their facial hair is different and they come back and they're unrecognizable by their fiancés who they left behind or their wives who they left behind because they look so different. Uh, but even within uh, some of these novels, so another one that Carmona wrote that's also dealing with these themes of migration, uh, that these are things that uh, women also experienced, um, so that women um, would also go through this process of changing how they dressed um, that corresponded to where they were living in Constantinople and then where they were living abroad. Uh, whose names changed uh, as they say moved from Balat in Istanbul, or a woman might be named Esther, and then she moves across the Bosphorus to Pera, and her name changes to Madame uh, Estrella, and then when she moves to New York, she becomes Estelle. So how the same name, the same woman's name, can change multiple times. Uh, but they're also within these stories, sometimes people would return, men would return and stay in the Ottoman Empire. And sometimes they would, you know, after having lived in, in France for a long period of time, and then in New York and back to France and to, to parts of the Ottoman Empire, Constantinople, and then back to France in New York, where you do see this type of hypermobility, but also that ultimately where they settle is not in the Ottoman Empire, that they go elsewhere, um, you know, whether Western Europe or, uh, or the United States, or even um, uh, Buenos Aires, Argentina, as other destinations. Yeah, I just, I just love that, like, I think you even said it at certain points, like the migrant captured people's imagination. And it was so kind of, I don't know, it had this level of imaginativeness to it that it even inspired, you know, novels and creative writing like that. I think that that's really interesting. Um, so I have a feeling that something that probably if people were listening right now, it's something they would really be wondering about is, okay, what drew these Sepharadim from areas in the Ottoman Empire, later the Turkish Republic, to Mexico specifically? Now, I know this is a massive question because the motivations really change over time. Um, so, you know, you could maybe just hit on some of the... Um, some of the primary motivations through, you know, throughout time in your book. Right. So one of the things that my book tries to show is like that people's motivations change over time for why they're, they're, you know, leaving one place and why they're going to a specific other destination. Um, and so, you know, the, these questions are sort of like, I delve into more in the book, like why at specific historical periods people might leave versus others. Um, but this question, and that sort of correlates to specific reasons why people might have gone to Mexico um, as opposed to other locations. Um, you know, one of the, the things that's not particularly surprising, I think, is just this idea of, um, you know, of what we might call today chain migration is where you know of someone who has who's already living in the place that you're going to. And so you might have a sibling there or an uncle there or a friend there. Um, and that person might send letters back or photographs to you and say, this is how life is here. There's economic possibility. Um, you know, I can help you set up yourself. Like I can loan you 
products for you to start selling. I can give you a leg up. Um, and so people might have immigrated specifically to Mexico for that reason. Um, and so some of the earliest people who I see were, you know, um, arriving in Mexico in the early, very early part of the 20th century were often family members or people who came from um, similar or from, you know, one of three cities. So amongst the earliest migrants to Mexico, they were from, or Sephardi migrants from uh, Istanbul, Izmir, and Salonika, which, you know, uh, sort of unsurprising because those were the three cities with the largest uh, Jewish populations. Um, but, you know, some of the, the sources in the Ladino press, say, from the Ottoman Empire, talk about migration almost as this, this disease or this sickness that infected people. Um, and so, like, a number of the earliest migrants to Mexico who I, I looked at came from fairly prominent families in the Ottoman Empire. So they're people who came with some money already. Uh, but, you know, as this sort of fever, migration fever took over different people, um, you know, many of them who, who were less economically prosperous saw migration as a means of going somewhere and making more money, um, going somewhere and being able to send money back to their families. Uh, you know, the, the Jewish society in the Ottoman Empire was very socially stratified. And so migration could be a means of sort of overcoming that social stratification through, you know, making money abroad. Um, but, you know, th there were a lot of stories of failure as well as these success stories. And so, uh, you know, sometimes um, I'm just thinking of, of a few articles in El Meseret, which was a Ladino newspaper from, from Izmir, uh, that talked about, for example, migration as the sickness that's overtaken people. And they say, you know, there are trends in where people go. And so, you know, first it started out with Paris, and then it was New York, and then it was... Uh, Manchester, and then Alexandria, and then Buenos Aires, and right now it's Mexico. But here's a story of somebody from Izmir who went to Mexico because he thought it was so great, and then hated it and lost almost all of the little money that he went there with and is now back in Izmir and doing these interviews telling people not to go there. Um, and then there were other people who wrote into the Ladino press in the Ottoman Empire saying, you know, you might have all of these stories about how great immigration is and how successful you can be, uh, but people don't write letters back unless they're doing well. And so it gives you, you know, a very skewed sense of how successful you could be if you go somewhere. But people were very attuned. I think like one of the major, major motivations for a lot of, a lot of immigrants was this uh, possibility for, for increased economic success, you know, economic mobility and social mobility. Um, and so, uh, you know, some people saw in Mexico a place where the economy was not yet developed in the way that it was in the United States. And that lack of development meant that there were more opportunities available for them to sort of create niches for themselves. And so it was really, um, let's say, Ottoman Jews, and this includes um, Ladino-speaking Jews as well as Arabic-speaking Jews from mostly from Aleppo and Damascus, as well as um, Ottoman Christians and Muslims largely coming from what is today Syria, uh, Palestine, and um, Lebanon, 
who brought the installment system with them to Mexico. So who started as peddlers selling on the installment system. And this wasn't really something that existed in Mexico prior to that, but it gave, um, you know, peddling was uh, an occupation that people could get into without a lot of capital. Um, and selling on the installment system was something people were familiar with from before they immigrated and uh, a realm where they could make a niche for themselves. Uh, but one of the other really cool things that I think, uh, you know, is worth highlighting about what drew people to Mexico was the similarity or the perceived similarities between Ladino and Spanish. Uh, and so, like, I came across from a bunch of different sources, you know, in the Ottoman Empire, if you heard someone speaking Spanish, it wasn't often, it wasn't usually Spanish that they were speaking, it was usually Ladino. And so if you heard a language that sounded like Spanish, it was almost entirely Jews who were speaking this language. So there are all of these accounts that I came across uh, from Mexico, but also from Cuba of people arriving and like, they get off the boat and everybody's speaking Spanish around them. And they say, say what, is everyone Jewish here? Because everyone's speaking, you know, speaking Spanish. And for them, that had always been a Jewish language. Um, you know, but I think like one of the things that this highlights is that the Sephardim who I'm looking at uh, were highly multilingual, you know, in looking at the different records that they left behind, you know, they, they spoke Ladino uh, as their first language, right? But many of them knew French as well, um, as sort of uh, whether from the Alliance schools that they went to or because that was sort of becoming uh, the language that indicated sort of upward social mobility in the Ottoman Empire. But then depending on where they lived, they might know Greek as well. Uh, they might know German, they might know Italian, they might know Turkish, they might know Bosnian. Uh, you know, Bulgarian. So these were people who were highly multilingual, but English was rarely amongst the languages that they knew. And so one of the things that I came across was quite a number of Sephardi Jews who immigrated first to the United States and sometimes even got American citizenship, but looked at Mexico and thought, well, you know, sort of because of partially like Jewish hierarchies in the United States, um, and the sort of economic networks that Sephardi Jews, particularly in the U.S., didn't have access to the way that Ashkenazi Jews did, that um, some Sephardi Jews were, you know, relegated to working as waiters or boot blacks or other professions in which, you know, were not really careers and there wasn't a lot of room for upward mobility. And so some of these people, uh, you know, in, in my book who I look at, got American citizenship, but they were working as, as waiters and they looked at Mexico and they said, well, you know, I won't struggle there with the language. I already know, you know, a language that's similar to Spanish. Um, and there's much more economic possibility for me there to have a career and build a business and build capital. Um, and so, you know, sometimes the same person who was, I'm thinking of one particular man named uh, Marcos Reina, who got American citizenship and then in 1917 moved to Mexico City. He had been a waiter in New York. Uh, he um, was for a while a, the Hazan for the Jewish community in Mexico City. And then he went south from Mexico City to the state of Puebla. Um, 
his wife and his wife's family were also Sephardi and in business between Mexico City and New York. He went into um, clothing in, in the uh, town in the state of Puebla and became incredibly, you know, incredibly successful. Um, and, you know, as did his wife, you know, his wife was also helping him in his business and, you know, his wife's family uh, through these transnational networks. And so this was something that you know, there was more of a possibility for that sort of connection, like through language and economic possibilities. And then the other cool thing that I'll mention before I stop on this point is that, um, you know, this is, is something that I came across um, in some Ladino newspapers uh, from New York um, that also coincided with Mexican ideas about building a new Mexican nation after the, the Mexican Revolution which was the idea that in post-revolutionary Mexico, the Mexican people would be a mestizo people. They would be a mixed people, um, ideally made up of combinations of, you know, people of um, like Catholics of Iberian background and indigenous people. Uh, but Sephardi Jews particularly, by virtue of their Spanish, you know, <laughs> Spanish descent, were seen as being equal to the Spanish or equivalent to the Spanish and assimilable in ways that other Jews were not. And so this is something that we see, that I came across in sort of Mexican foreign policy and discussions about immigration and whether or not Jewish immigrants were desirable and sort of like with the answer that no except Sephardi Jews because they have kept the Spanish language and they have these Iberian connections. And then we also, I also saw this idea sort of repeated in a similar way in the Ladino press that, um, that there were cultural and social commonalities between Mexican people and Sephardi people because they were both the Mexican and Sephardi people in, in this telling. Right? It's not necessarily historically accurate, but in how it was conveyed in the Ladino press, that the Mexican people and Sephardi people both came to exist in 1492 out of this sort of traumatic uh, encounter with or experience with Spain. And so because of this Iberian connection, there were cultural and social similarities, but also these sort of like ontological similarities in that like the Sephardi people and the Mexican people came to exist at the same time out of like as a result of the same people. Okay, like I wish that people could see us right now because you and I are like moving our hands and we're like smiling, and nodding at each other because like you said, this is, it's just cool. It's just really cool. And there are so many things that you said that I want to dig into, but I'm going to try to limit myself a little bit. Um, just going off of some of the final points that you just made, I think that's something that really struck me about this book and the case of Sephardic migration to Mexico is that we really cannot apply some of many of the challenges that Sephardim faced upon going coming to the United States. We cannot apply those same challenges to Mexico. Um, so I wanted to know, I mean, you know, there are there are very like unfortunate stories that many Sephardim are familiar with about Ladino speaking Sephardim coming to the United States and being uh, and not being accepted by Ashkenazi Jews who are already there or, um, you know, p 
potentially, you know, being even looked at suspiciously by the American government due to like Oriental type origins. I wonder if you can kind of talk, you know, shifting now from kind of the individuals to the perspective of the state, like how did Mexico uh, perceive these migrants and kind of their desirability and how did that really impact their, like these, the Sephardic migrants experience there that in that it was so different from their experience in the U.S.? Yeah, that's a great question. And this is sort of one of the things that I like, one of the directions in which I would love to see, um, you know, Jewish history in, in the Americas writ large um, expand is that I think, you know, as you said, it's precisely that the the stories and experiences of Sephardi Jews in the United States are not um, are not necessarily universal experiences throughout the hemisphere or in other places um, in the Sephardi diaspora. And so I think, you know, it's really important to look at how uh, sort of there are distinct national and regional experiences that uh, might be different for Sephardi Jews in different places. Um, and so this question of like, you know, more of a, a, a top-down or state-centered, um, you know, view of, of Sephardi migrants from the perspective of the Mexican state. Um, I think there are certain ways that we can, you know, distinguish uh, Sephardi experiences in Mexico from, you know, what you mentioned in the United, United States, the sort of lack of recognition or suspicion, both on the parts of much larger Ashkenazi community in the U.S. Um, or, or the, the American government. Um, and I think one of the key differences uh, in Mexico was that, um, you know, the Mexican Jewish community uh, or communities, as it might, might be you know, more accurate to say, there was never really one mate, like majority population. And so um, as, as the Mexican, you know, as Mexican or Jewish immigrants to Mexico arrived, they came from, uh, different places, but there wasn't like an Ashkenazi majority in the way that there was in the United States. Um, but, you know, going back to the earlier question, um, one of the key differences, I think, that is tied to the similarities between Ladino and Spanish was that as the, the Jewish community in Mexico was growing, say in the early 20th century um, and through World War One. Um, you know, even as the Mexican Revolution was going on, there were still people, uh, Jews coming to Mexico, um, was that Sephardi Jews played a key role as intermediaries between the Mexican state and the larger Jewish community. Um, and I say Jewish community here uh, because until the 1920s, the, the Jewish community was unified between Arabic speakers, Yiddish speakers, and, and Ladino speakers. Although in the 20s, those groups frac uh, fractured into sort of separate communal structures. But it was really Sephardim, Ladino-speaking Jews, who were the ones who um, served in these intermediary roles, right? Who, you know, filed petitions for, say, a Jewish cemetery with the municipality of Mexico City. Um, or, you know, engaged in um, diplomacy on behalf of the Mexican state. So there were a number of uh, Sephardi diplomats who the Mexican government had as honorary consuls 
um, in, you know, in Izmir, elsewhere in the Mediterranean region, in places like Iran, in Algeria, um, you know, they wanted a Sephardi uh, uh, individual as the honorary consul to Beirut, although that person turned down the position, but then also in Shanghai or, or um, you know, Paris or elsewhere. Um, and this had to do with the multilinguality of Sephardi Jews, that they knew Spanish or they could learn Spanish very quickly, although sometimes there are like little hints of Ladino that still come through in their Spanish. Uh, but they also knew French, which was the language of diplomacy. And then they knew other languages sometimes as well. And so for, you know, for a diplomatic post, these people were in a way perfect for that. Um, and so some Mexican, some people in the Mexican foreign ministry, for example, looked at Sephardi Jews particularly as being very well positioned to represent Mexican economic interests and political interests abroad. Um, so, you know, that, that's another <laughs> point. Um, what I would say, though, is like over the course of the 1920s and 1930s, the sort of um, like liberal agenda within Mexico, but also within Latin America more broadly started to sort of falter a little bit. And, you know, with the economic downturn after uh, with, with the depression um, in Mexico, uh, you know, tens of thousands of Mexicans were repatriated, you know, repatriated from the United States and, and came back to Mexico. Um, and there was a challenge of employing these people. Uh, and there was growing xenophobia uh, within Mexico and elsewhere over the later 1920s and 1930s. Um, and during this time, Jews of all backgrounds came to be viewed more suspiciously. So there was a shift away from viewing Sephardi Jews as sort of an exception to viewing Jews in general as being sort of not desirable immigrants, um, in part because Jews tended to marry within their communities. Um, and so if the idea of Me the Mexican nation or Mexican people was built on this idea of mestizaje or mixing, if Jews didn't mix, they weren't really contributing to, you know, the, the Mexican people. Um, and I also important to note that these, this sort of xenophobia was not targeting Jews explicitly. So I'm using the term xenophobia here as opposed to anti-Semitism, uh, because although anti-Semitic tropes were a part of this, it wasn't targeting only Jews. And in fact, um, it sort of the xenophobia targeted Chinese, uh, immigrants uh, the most harshly. So there were actually pogroms in northern Mexico in 1931 that resulted in almost the wholesale expulsion of, uh, Jew, of, of Chinese immigrants and oftentimes their Mexican wives and Mexican-born children to China. Um, and, and similar tropes of sort of the lack of um, marriage with outside of their community or this idea that um, you know money was kept within their community and therefore they weren't economically beneficial uh, also was applied to serial Lebanese immigrants who were Christian or Muslim. So it wasn't something uniquely targeting Jews, but we do see, or uh, you know, over the course of the 1930s, especially, this sort of clamping down on immigration, both along racial reason, like for racial reasons. 
but also on for economic reasons, part of this sort of broader xenophobia and worries about the economy. Something that you just said, um, this notion of desirability, I think is really important. Um, not only the desirability of like migrants or immigrants to a new place, but I think like Sephardic Jews from Turkey were kind of caught between whether they were around this time, were kind of caught between whether they were desirable as migrants elsewhere or whether as foreigners rather, or whether they were even desirable in the new Turkish Republic. I mean, like, were, could they even be desirable citizens? So maybe you could talk about that a little bit also. Yeah, I think that's getting at one of the key dynamics. Um, one of the key things that I talk about in the book as well is that, you know, um, Sephardi Jews in Turkey, and, you know, perhaps I think we can extend this to, to Greece or elsewhere in places that have been part of the Ottoman Empire, that there was really this question of like, you know, as they're migrating or as they're immigrating somewhere else, they have to sort of make themselves desirable or perceived as desirable for the places that they're going. But there is also this pressing question of whether, you know, they would be desirable in any post-Ottoman state. So, you know, um, Devin Nahr, who's a historian of Sephardi Jewry at the University of Washington, talks about how sort of in the post-World War I period, and he's looking specifically at uh, Sephardi Jews in Salonika, uh, but I think this is ap applicable to Sephardi Jews elsewhere in Ottoman lands, that in choosing to migrate, they weren't necessarily choosing between an old world and a new world, but the old world for them or the places where they were, had been living sometimes for centuries had very quickly become a new world as well. And this, this was a world of the nation state, you know, after World War One and the Paris Peace Conferences or the, you know, the Treaty of Lausanne that led to the creation of the Turkish Republic. There was this question of minority protection of the place that people who were now deemed to be uh, linguistic or religious minorities, what place they might have in these new states if they had any place at all, um, and what that sort of desirability or how they could fit themselves to belong in a new nation state as a minority. And so, you know, in the case of Turkey, uh, Jews and, you know, Armenian Christians and Greek Orthodox Christians and Assyrians and other other religious or, you know, ethnic minorities in the case of Kurds were extended Turkish citizenship. But that didn't necessarily mean and oftentimes didn't mean that they were perceived as being truly Turkish. Uh, and so there was this discrepancy between having the citizenship on the one hand versus being understood as part of the Turkish nation on the other. Um, and so when I mentioned like Ladino being held up as a sign in Mexico that like Sephardi Jews were potentially desirable, that their Iberian origins, <laughs> distant Iberian origins, made them potentially desirable or assimilable. This was precisely the same time period in Turkey where there was this like heavy pressure on Jews and other ethno-religious minorities to stop speaking their languages, uh, to give up, you know, Ladino or Armenian or Greek or the other language or Kurdish or the other languages they spoke uh, in favor of Turkish. So um, to, you know, end education in Ladino or in French in Jewish schools. Um, there was a heavy campaign to not speak any language other than Turkish outside of your house. 
uh, where there were, you know, placards all over the cities and on the ferries between, you know, different parts of Izmir or different parts of Istanbul saying Vatandaş Türkçe konuş or citizen speak Turkish. Uh, there was heavy pressure to Turkify your name, right? So uh, to change your your first names to um, a Turkish name and to change your last names, you know, take on an entirely new last name. Uh, as in 1934, Turkey instituted a policy that all people should have last names. Uh, so sometimes people took, uh, Sephardi Jews took on entirely new last names that were Turkish. And sometimes they sort of Turkified their Sephardi last names by adding a Turkish pre uh, prefix to it or um, taking off, you know, like the last name Abrevaya, um, taking off the final A where to sort of make it Abravai and I in Turkish means moon and that's a common Turkish, you know, part of a Turkish surname. And so it was a way of making their last name sound more Turkish. Um, and so, you know, I think as you noted, like this was a period in which sort of Sephardi Jews on all sides were having to prove that they were desirable or good citizens in various ways that often required giving up a lot and relinquishing a lot. Um, you know, even as a lot of the people who I look at it in my book were very creative in how they uh, sort of demonstrated their desirability. But I think it's also important, um, you know, to keep in mind uh, like the hardships that like the personal hardships that you know, didn't come up in the historical documents that I'm looking at. Uh, but that were certainly a part of that experience. There's, there's feelings of loss over, um, you know, relinquishing your language or having to come to terms with like, what does it mean to be a minority? Which wasn't how the Ottoman Empire structured society necessarily, but it was very much the part of like part of how nation states understood different peoples. Um, and so like this, you know, I think this is one of the reasons for me as a historian, why I find this transition from empire to nation state so fascinating. If, you know, we're looking at the perspective from the perspectives of, of people who didn't really fit easily within like nation state categories. Um, and, you know, all the more so if they were people who were moving around all the time, because that is not certainly not what nation states want totally. at this time. On that, on like the, you know, the real like human element of that story, I think that another reason why telling the story of the individual is so important is because, as you point out, like sometimes in order to forge desirability or forge citizenship, like sometimes people had to um, use illicit means in order to do so. That doesn't mean that they are bad people, right? That doesn't like indicate anything about necessarily like their entire person it's like we have to take that in the context of everything that was going on and kind of like you said like this push and pull of like where do i fit um maybe you could just elaborate on that a little as well kind of like the yeah that aspect of you know telling the stories of people who took illicit routes or non-traditional if you i don't really like that but you know these alternate routes to kind of belong yeah so you know um actually um, like if, if like the title of my book itself is called Forging Ties, Forging Passports. And so I'm, you know, I like wordplay. Um, it's like I, I have a very, I guess, 
like dad humor. Like I make dad jokes a lot and find them really funny. Um, but so I'm like deliberately playing on this idea of what it means to forge here, because a lot of what I was looking at in this book are the connections that people made with each other and the sort of like both very local, but also very transnational senses of community that people created. Uh, but one of the means that they did that, as, as you point out, or as you allude to, is through sort of playing with documentation, right? Um, and, you know, I certainly, uh, like, one of the things I do not want to imply in my book, and it certainly does not come through if you actually read the book, is the idea that people who were falsifying documentation were doing, like, that that made them criminal, or that made them doing something, like, that meant that they were bad people. And I think in this time period and perhaps in later time periods as well, um, at least in my perspective and indeed in the perspective of some of the people who I look at in my book, that they saw rather that like state requirements for passports and visas and nationalities were the, were the mechanisms of exclusion and were mechanisms of um, exploitation of people. And that, you know, it was the states that were doing things that were bad as opposed to people who are really just you know trying to survive in many cases or trying to connect with other people um and you know uh so like forging a passport or getting a forged passport or you know, forging a birth certificate or uh paying a bribe uh wasn't always like certainly wasn't always a like it was a mechanism for survival of course like the most obvious example of that are people who, you know, even people in my book who like paid bribes to get out of uh, Nazi occupied France and to be able to get visas into Mexico when Mexico had essentially shut its borders, as did many other countries, to Jewish refugees. Right. Can we say that those people who paid bribes to get like to literally save their lives were bad people? No. Like, I think from the view of where we are today, countries who didn't accept Jewish refugees during World War II were the, you know, they had the bad policies, not the people who were trying to save their lives. Um, but this idea of forging, like where this terminology comes from is actually uh, from uh, someone who plays a really prominent role in my book. And this was a man by the name of Mauricio Fresco. Um, and, uh, you know, I love, loved him as, I mean, I obviously never, not obviously, but I never met him personally. I don't really know what he was, was like as a person, but as a historical figure and as somebody like just the things that he lived and experienced um, were just truly incredible. And I think in many ways, sort of, he exemplified uh, to sort of almost an exaggerated uh, degree, a lot of the other phenomenon that many other people engaged with in my book. Um, so I'll get it to, to Mauricio Fresco in a second, but I think, you know, going back to the first question you asked of like the problems of doing this type of transnational research is that Mauricio Fresco sort of opens my book. The final chapter of my book is about him. The final sentence of my book, uh, I'm quoting him in it. I had no idea when I was doing dissertation research who Mauricio Fresco was. Like, fortunately, I had copied some of his, like, files related to him. 
but I did not piece together that they were the same people until years later. So I thought that there were multiple people named Mauricio Fresco, one of whom was a Sephardi Jew from Istanbul who applied to become a Mexican citizen in the late 20s. And another one of whom was a Mexican diplomat first in Shanghai um, and then in Paris and Marseille and Lisbon during World War II, um, you know, who was born in Merida in the Yucatan. Uh, but I just happened to copy his whole file because as I said, I was like copying everything from people who had the same name. And it took me years later, like, to piece together that these Mauricio Frescos were actually the same person. And this, this Mauricio Fresco who had applied for Mexican citizenship later became this really prominent Mexican diplomat in part because he got a fake birth certificate from Merida that said he was a Mexican citizen. And that enabled him in part to have this Mexi like this really prominent career in the Mexican diplomatic corps. Um, so, you know, I said that the, the title of my book comes from him in part, or is inspired by his work. Uh, he was born in Istanbul or Constantinople in 1900. Uh, he was the youngest son of nine children. And his father was a man named David Fresco, who was the most prominent uh, Ladino newspaper editor um, of his time. Uh, he, he ran a newspaper called El Tiempo. And at some point in, it, I think around 1917, but I don't have exact paperwork for this, Mauricio left Istanbul. He likely did that through illicit means because it was at a time when the Ottoman Empire did not want young men who were of conscriptable age to leave. So I'm not quite sure how he got out, but he did somehow. And in 1923, he arrived in Mexico from France. Um, he applied for Mexican citizenship in 1928, uh, but simul or even prior to that, in 1926, he had registered his birth certificate in Merida, uh, or registered that he had been born in Merida, in the Yucatan. He gave his parents' name as the same names, so his mother and father were still Mauri uh, David and Rebecca Fresco. Um, he gave his same birthday as the birthday on his official, you know, his actual documentation. Um, but then by the late, uh, or I guess by 1931, he was living in Shanghai. And he was a journalist there, like his father. Um, and I mentioned that there was this pogrom, these pogroms against Chinese uh, immigrants in northern Mexico. Um, and so in the, 19, in the early 1930s, in 1931, Fresco in Shanghai saw that there were quite a number of Mexican women um, who had returned to or had gone to China after their their husbands were expelled only to be abandoned by their husbands um, oftentimes with Mexican born you know having Mexican born children who also now lived in Shanghai uh, or elsewhere in China uh, this was at a time period where when a woman married someone of a different nationality, she almost into always lost her citizenship for his. These are Mexican-born women who had been Mexican citizens and were no longer. Um, and Fresco would have gained prominence first by bringing attention to these women who had been abandoned, Mexican women with Mexican-born children, and really advocating for them to get repatriated. And through that, and also through a connection to um, 
a, a Sephardi man uh, named Alberto Mizrahi, who um, uh, was from Monastir and then through Salonica ended up in Mexico City. Uh, he had a major art gallery and bookstore in Mexico City. He was actually the first um, art agent for uh, Diego Rivera and Frida Kahlo. Um, but he was also very close friends with a man named Genaro Estrada, who was uh, later would become the um, the uh, the minister of uh, for uh, the secretary secretariat of foreign relations in Mexico City, and apparently uh, Estrada used to come into the bookstore and like he learned Ladino to be able to converse with Alberto Mizrahi there, and so Fresco reached out through another friend of his who was also Salonican and married to. Um, uh, the the, the uh, daughter of Alberto Mizrahi, or no, the sister of Alberto Mizrahi, reached out to him, and you know there might have been some strings pulled behind the scene, but then Mauricio ended up as the honorary consul um, to for Mexico in Shanghai, and he held that post until 1937. Uh, at which point he had to flee under the threat of death because he published a book called Para uh, Shanghai. Paradise of Adventurers under a pseudonym. He published this in English. And this book like um, sought to sort of highlight uh, all of the corruption in Shanghai that, um, that uh, foreigners were perpetrating. And so like, for example, he highlighted how, you know, the League of Nations officials who came in to, um, ostensibly to investigate the Japanese incursion into uh, Manchuria, didn't actually go to the front to see what was going on. They just took, you know, uh, what Japanese officials were telling them because the League of Nations people were much more interested in the beautiful Russian women who had fled the Bolshevik revolution. Uh, he also talked about how the Catholic Church in Shanghai was very much involved in Sort of gambling schemes um, about how easily passports could be found on the black market. He was very critical about how um, Americans and Europeans were using extraterritoriality to exploit uh, Chinese people in Shanghai. Uh, this book was later translated in, into Chinese and was actually like continued to be published. Um, after the, the communist revolution in China, because it was seen as having such a sympathetic portrayal of what, what Chinese people had experienced at the hands of European powers. But in any case, Fresco pissed off a lot of people, had to flee under the threat of death, um, went to New York, and then was posted in Paris. And he was in Paris as the uh, first secretary of the Mexican or consulate there. Um, as the city came under Nazi occupation and was one of the final representatives of the Mexican government in Paris. So he's living as this sort of secret, you know, like this, you know, living on the out, uh, sort of overtly as, uh, you know, a Mexican diplomatic official. But of course, he also had this Jewish background and he also had this Turkish background, which, you know, he had to hide. But there are little hints of it that's, that crept through. So, for example, um, he wrote this book um, 
in, I can't remember if he published it in 43 or 44, I think it was 43. Uh, the translation is, I was in Germany with the Nazis, uh, where he talks about his experiences um, as, you know, being in Paris under Nazi occupation. Uh, you know, so for example, he recounts uh, how uh, German officials came in and threatened to take over Mexican property in, in Paris, saying like, you know, Mexicans, like, yes, they're neutral in the war, but Mexican people are, you know, of an indigenous background. And so they're not Aryans. And so we can just take Mexican property. And Fresco says, well, if you want to do that, um, I'll telegraph, uh, telegraph, you know, back to Mexico City and say that we will immediately requisition all German owned properties in Mexico if you do this. And there are a lot more German properties in Mexico than there are uh, Mexican owned properties in France. So, you know, it's your decision. And then the, the German officials sort of walked back this, this threat. Um, but he also freed from the Drancy internment camp, a man by the name of Roberto Sobrado. Um, who, you know, in his book, Fresco describes Sobrado, like doesn't mention that he's Jewish, just says he was in this internment camp, uh, which was the, the major camp from which Jews in France were later deported to Auschwitz and to other, other um, death camps. Um, Fresco just mentions that he's, he was a Mexican citizen and that, you know, when they, they got him successfully out of, of, of Drancy, he was in really bad physical condition. Um, what Fresco does not mention are a few things, which was that Sobrado was also from Istanbul, that Sobrado was Jewish, and that Mauricio Fresco himself had been one of the character witnesses for Roberto Sobrado's um, successful application to become a Mexican citizen. So there were like these multiple connections there. So all of this gets back to the story of like, why does my book have the title that it does? Well, in 1949, um, Mauricio Fresco wrote a letter to the really prominent, famous Turkish Jewish historian Avram Galante. And he writes to Galante and he says, you know, I'm writing you, you probably don't remember me. It's been at least 20 years since we last saw each other, but you know, my father was David Fresco. I'm his youngest son. And I really am, you know, looking for more information about my father because I was too young to ask about him um, when, when he was alive and unfortunately he's dead. And I'm looking for information about my father uh, because I'm, I'm proud to be his son. And then he says, you know, I don't know if you, my dad told you, but I have been involved in the world of diplomacy for the last 18 years. And it was actually longer than that at this point. Um, and he said, you know, and he sort of lists that he had been in Paris under Nazi occupation, and he had also been in Russia and you know, in China and in Portugal and these other places he'd been stationed. And he said, you know, all of these experiences, I'm gonna actually just read this, this if I sorry for the sounds of the page, pages flipping. But he says that this experience in the Mexican diplomatic corps had compelled him to publish or to write a book that he said that he would publish. He never actually published this book, but he said this book would be called Forge Your Own Passport. And he said this book, based on his experiences, would, quote, prove the stupidity of passports, visas, nationalities, races, etc. 
And he said that these things were essentially stupid because they enabled the exploitation of people. And he says, this is also a quotation from him. He says, certainly everyone engages in exploitation, but this does not mean that one should abstain from denouncing it. And so this was the idea that I wanted to convey in part through my book as well, is that, you know, in Fresco's view, as I said, it was not he himself or any other people who were forging their passports who were doing things that were wrong, but rather it was this whole institution and this whole structure that was wrong and that enabled exploitation. And unfortunately, he never published this book. I really wish that he had. Uh, but that's where the, the idea, where the title comes from for my book, this idea of forging passports is that, you know, from Mauricio Fresco, from his own experience of forging papers, um, which, you know, a number of other people did as well, but that this was not something that made them bad or immoral, but rather pointed to, and I, I think still points to, the corruption or, or rather the um, injustices that um, that visas and that passports and that immigration regimes enable of people who are deemed to be undesirable. And I think in that way, some of the stories that I talk about in my book or some of the larger messages of the book are equally applicable to you know, discourse today or to um, what we see in the news cycle, cycle today. So they're not, this is, even though I'm writing about a century ago, these are still things that are very present. And the experiences of the people in my book are still experiences that, you know, thousands, if not millions of people are experiencing on a daily basis in the world we live in today. Absolutely. First of all, thank you for sharing that story about Mauricio, because I think it's so important for people to hear that, um, because there are many rich stories like that in your book. And that's one of the things that makes it so enjoyable and also like easy to read. I mean, it's like, cause the way that I think, you know, I mean, at least for me, the way that I remember things and I remember historical details is if I can attach them to an interesting experience or like, you know, a detailed story of a person and the way that you've constructed the book and pieced together these vignettes really I think it just helps the book like stick with people so I'm really glad that you shared that story um but you know I mean we could stay here forever so I'm gonna try to wrap it up a little bit but and truth I mean this has been like so so fun like just a great conversation but I think that exactly you know what you said about how the questions that your book deals with are really questions that I mean definitely in the United States like we're all kind of still trying to figure out and I would say as well a question that Sephardic Jews recently became very preoccupied with with the offer from Spain and Portugal to acquire citizenship for people who could prove their um, you know their lineage from Spain and Portugal I think that raised a lot of questions for Sephardic Jews that maybe some of them had not thought about in a long time about what is the value of citizenship like how do I define myself on this piece of paper and like how much does it matter and all of those things so I think that's definitely um, just one of the many things that makes this book uh, really thought-provoking and and excellent. Um, so before we end, I wanted to uh, I wanted to ask you: Do you have any other projects on the horizon, or what what's your next project? What's your next idea here? Yeah, so uh, great question. Um, you know, 
So as I mentioned earlier, one of the, the projects that I'm, I'm working on and that I'm really passionate about is the, the translation of mater materials from Ladino into English. Um, you know, I think as this talk has, like as our discussion has sort of touched on, Sephardi Jews are often overlooked, whether that is in Sephardi history or in other aspects of Sephardi culture, and particularly, I think, in Sephardi literature, where uh, Ladino literature has often been portrayed as, you know, translations or adaptations of works in other languages, that it's sort of derivative from um, other literatures. And so I'm really interested in translating Ladino works that are original, um, that aren't translations from other languages, and that shed light on the experiences and questions and anxieties of of Sephardi Jews or of Ladino speaking Jews in the late Ottoman Empire or you know you know the the its successor states um so I have a few projects that are in that that vein that I'm working on um one is this this project of um of publishing uh, one Ladino novel to start with and then maybe more with the University of Washington um, I've, I've also done a translation and I'm working on polishing that and writing an introduction for a translation of um, the World War I diary of the um, Izmir-based Ladino newspaper uh, director Alexander Ben-Ghiat. Alexander ben uh, he kept a diary during World War I until 1919 of his experiences in Izmir during the war. Um, and there's literally not no source like this um you know from ladino or really from any other language in the ottoman empire that gives such good insight into what was going on on the ground in ismir during world war one um, and i think in some ways it you know like he's writing about the armenian genocide as it's happening he's very aware of that he's very aware of you know other sorts of atrocities playing out um within uh you know, within the Ottoman Empire against other groups, um, including Jews, um, and then just the daily hardship of war. So I'm working on the translation of that, which I think will be a great uh, teaching resource as well. Um, and then <laughs> this is sort of a pandemic project that I wasn't like, what I thought my sort of second big historical project would be, um, sadly, cannot i can't currently work on it because of you know of the pandemic and what that means about access to archives and to the ability to travel um, and so i'm actually working on a a new project with uh julia phillips cohen who's a fellow historian of sephardi jews at vanderbilt university um where we're looking at um the untold stories of um ottoman and North African Jews in Paris during the uh, late 1800s through World War II as fashion designers and perfume makers and art collectors. Uh, so sort of looking at these individuals as tastemakers, as people on the forefront of sort of the avant-garde fashion movements. Um, and particularly exciting for me is how prominent uh, North African and um, Ottoman Jewish women were in these endeavors. So also sort of looking at women as <laughs> like Jewish, Middle Eastern Jewish women as being at the forefront of, you know, having careers and 
working outside of the home, not because they had to, but because they wanted to, and like multi-generations of these women doing that. So that was a project that I wasn't expecting to do pre-pandemic, but um, Julia and I have a, an article draft that we're finishing up for this and uh, sort of a plan to write a book together about about these people and their, their sort of untold stories and the materials that they produced and the, the networks created out of them uh, that combines, you know, Jewish diet like Sephardi diaspora with Sephardi Jews who remained in in the Ottoman Empire and you know bridges these sort of gaps like these these boundaries between Sephardi and North African Jews that um, you know are too often I think or maybe too often taken as discrete groups of people and also looks at these people like cutting edge fashion designers and perf like perfumiers and um, art collectors. So bizarrely, that's been possible during the time of the pandemic. But I think in some ways, like this has also made made research different in new ways. Like I've together, Julie and I've interviewed people in like in France and in England and in Uruguay and in Israel and New Caledonia, who are all the descendants of various people. And um, you know, I think like this is an upside of the sort of Zoom life that we're living in now is that all of a sudden it seems more possible to like reach out to people and create connections with people all over the world because, you know, I can't physically go to an archive. So it's like, well, how else can I do research now? So those are my new projects um, or things that, you know, are, are in, in process right now, in progress right now that I'm really excited about. I, I'm like so excited also, like, let me know when that book comes out, because I want to interview you guys about it. <laughs> I want to be the first one to be able to dig into that. That's amazing. Amazing. Okay, well, Davey, thank you so much for your time today. This was, like I said before, this was just fun. This was really great. And I really enjoyed talking to you and getting to hear more about your book. Um, so yeah, just thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, this was a, a lot of fun. And really, thank you for inviting me. And for all of those, for those of you who are listening, thank you for, for sticking with it. Okay, great. So once again, I'm McKenna Mezzestrano, and this was Forging Ties, Forging Passports, Migration and the Modern Sephardi Diaspora by Davy Mays. Mm -hmm.